Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. David, how are you doing, sir? I'm good, Matthew. Thanks for having me on. Well, thank you for coming on. You're, you're a superstar. So we're, we're delighted that you joined our humble little show. <laughs> well, look, um, I would... We haven't spoken before, obviously, so it'd be, it'd be great to kind of get, get to know each other and sort of um, get a rundown um, uh, on, on you, if you don't mind. So, I mean, maybe if you just like, spend a couple of minutes, just tell us a bit about your background, your working background, as of how you've got to where you are today, experiences sure. and so forth. Sure. I came into the business in 1973, so I uh, saw very quickly what a bear market can look like. You know, it was the top of the nifty 50 market, and, and I learned pretty early on that uh, you wanted to uh, uh, control your risks. That you know, it wasn't just about returns; that it was also about risk. So that that really set me up for uh, the rest of my career in terms of being somewhat aware that you know it's a risk reward relationship, and it's not just reward. Um, I started in you know banking, was there for eight years, and then moved over to uh, running a, a Fortune 100 pension fund, equity pension fund. Uh, back in the 1980s, had top one percentile performance for the five years that I was there. Um, kind of took a, a firm that wasn't um, very equity oriented. They'd been burnt back in the 1974 bear market. So they pulled money in house and did a lot of private placements and fixed income. And then they were missing the oil market in, in the early 80s. And they said, we need to have an equity guy in here. So I was brought in. And you know, I was still wet behind the ears. I was barely 30. And this was a company that was run by a lot of, you know, 55, 60 year olds. And I'm telling them you can be conservative and still make money. And I think they kind of questioned it because of what had happened earlier. Uh, so it was kind of a building credibility along the way. But I took them from 10% equities to 50% by the time I left. And simply because the performance was, you know, I was beating the S&P by 700 base points a year for five years running. And I did it simply by being where everybody else wasn't. So when everybody else was looking backwards at oil, because that had been what had been so hot, uh, in 1982, when I started, um, I said, we don't want any oil. You know, oil's... um, peaked and now going forward, that's going to be under distribution. So that helped us a lot. And then I was in things like food companies and drug companies and, you know, consumer growth companies at a time when they were selling at book value and nobody wanted them. So, you know, the eighties was all about those stocks and we got in there very early. Um, and then I moved on, ran um, pension money for Fidelity uh, and then um, in the 90s was with an insurance company and kind of a parallel thing to what I, I did at the um, Fortune 100 company was in, in reverse. I said, you know, those consumer growth companies have gone through the roof in the last decade. It's time to buy capital goods, uh, industrial companies, technology, you know, uh, all the capital goods area because they're flat on their back. And again, that was the beginning of a huge cycle in the 90s for particularly technology, but all capital goods. Um, so that's kind of was my history through investing was, um, you know, getting early on in big, big cycles and then staying with them. And I think, you know, that still is is the way I approach things today. 
Some people describe you, I think maybe you describe yourself as a contrarian, um, not in investing, but just generally, um, in your attitude to uh, life. So you, you started off in 1973, you've seen a few cycles, and so have I, unfortunately, and you you see patterns, right? You see these patterns forming and behaviours, uh, you know, the way that people behave and react to them. I mean, what do you, what do you think is going on now? Because I, I, it feels... A very uncertain time again. I, in, fact, in fact, I don't think I've felt this in my lifetime. What are you seeing? Yeah, there? this is a, this is such a, a unusual period because um, you know in the last year we've had you know a pandemic hit us, and across the globe it's hit the economy very hard, and yet particularly in the U.S. but around around the globe, stocks seem to want to ignore that and move forward. I was fortunate in March in terms of saying, you know, in spite of what this is, we're not heading straight down, that we actually are still in an up cycle. We still are in a bull cycle. So I uh, was calling for a, a melt up to end what I think is a 38 year secular bull market that started in 1982. Um, and I, uh, prior to the pandemic, prior to March, I was saying we're gonna end it in a, in a melt up this year. Then the pandemic hit. It would have been easy for me to say, oops, you know, I was a little um, late that this thing rolled over before I expected. And I could have turned bearish, but I took a look at all my work and I said, no, this is a fake out. You know, it's real, but it's not the beginning of the bear market. Um, and I stayed with it and said, no, we're still going to have a melt up. We're still going to go to 4,500. And that's still, you know, that's my story now. Um, I do believe we're in the last stages of a secular bull market, and I've been on record many times saying that when this top hits, and I think it's in the next few months, it will be a high water mark that will probably stand for decades. So we're we're looking at I think a very um, strange time in that you know you have to stay with this because it is a bull market but you're not very far away time-wise to when I think this could be a pretty ugly bear market. Yeah, I mean, again, we've got all sorts of um, abilities of, of people and experience uh, watching this. So just be clear what you mean by a, a, a secular bull market because um, there's a lot of synthetic components out there which people may or may not understand. Can you, if you don't mind sort of diving into that? Sure. Um, people hear bull market and bear market and you have to differentiate. a. Um, cyclical bull market is um, when you have a recovery in the economy, uh, the stock market parallels that. And it's usually something that might last eight or 10 years. Uh, and it's, it's basically um, because the economy is, is growing, the stock market will benefit and, and go up. And then you hit a point where typically central banks intervene because the economy is getting overheated. They tighten down um, things, they raise rates, they pull in money, and you begin a bear market to kind of correct the excesses that are in the system. That's what a cyclical bull or bear market is. A secular bull or bear market is something that includes several of those cycles. And in this particular case, uh, not everybody dates, I'm probably pretty unique in dating it back to 1982, uh, the reason I do is because that was the beginning of disinflation. You know, inflation peaked in the early 80s, and we've been ratcheting down both inflation and interest rates ever since. 
So you went from 20% inflation, 15% long bond back in 19, early, you know, 1981, um, to where now we're, you know, 1% 10 year, uh, 1.5%, 30 year, and, you know, inflation's down close to that as well. So, so you've come a long way. The reason that's so important to the stock market is that PE multiples are the inverse of interest rates, or the relationship is pretty much the inverse. So that as you've had rates drop so dramatically, you've had price earnings multiples move up. And that's kind of how markets expand. Um, you, know, you have two components. You have um, the earnings and you have the price earnings multiple, the capitalization of those earnings. So if rates are moving down for a long period of time like that, um, you drive stocks up. And we've had this amazing bull market. You know, I, I don't remember the S&P number from back in 1982, but the Dow was 880 points or 880 back in August of 1982 when I jumped in. Today, it's 30,000. So you can see you've had this massive run-up in stocks. Uh, a lot of people, younger people today, probably have no idea where it came from. Yeah, <laughs> I'd agree with that. Um, I, I want to ask a question about the involvement of governments in terms of, do you think governments should let markets be more organic, i.e. find their own floors, find their own tops? Because they do try and temper um, growth or they do try and encourage growth at times depending on what's going on in, in the cycle. Do you think that they have become too involved? Um, for sure. Now, I'm, I'm again, I think my view is a little different than most people out there. The, the popular narrative is that you know, the Fed should be um, driven out of business, you know, that they're all they're doing is exacerbating cycles and creating this this uh, massive credit cycle that's going to burst. Um, and and I agree with all of that. If you could step back, you know, go take a time machine, go back 30 years, you know, it, that would make sense to, you know, say central banks should not be managing the cycles because all they do is exacerbate them. Um, they're usually laid in and laid out. Um, however, where we are today, I you know, and I know there's particularly the Austrian school out there that you know hates the Fed and hates central banks and uh, would love to see them out of business. Um, but the truth is, if we followed the Austrian narrative or the popular narrative out there of saying you know get the Fed out of our our economy, we'd all be living in caves. You know, it's where we are today, we, we, you know, there's a reality and there's a theory. And if you want to follow the theory, you're going to be living in caves. The reality is it just, you know, you're going to need, um, because of the massive leverage in the system, you're going to need the Fed and the central banks to try to manage their way through this. Are they going to be successful? In the end, probably no. But reality, again, is whether you like it or not, no government's going to stand aside and say, hey, we're going to let things go their natural course. Because like I said, you'd have 50%, 60% unemployment, and you'd have, you know, people starving to death. So so it's just not realistic that that's going to happen, even if people think that would be the correct theory. So you think there, there was a time when it, it would have been appropriate, but it's too late now to change? We're on yeah, I'm, a, I'm basically a monetarist. What I think would have been appropriate is if we had followed Milton Friedman's advice way back and had a monetary rule that said we're gonna we're gonna grow money two percent a year or what have you. 
Um, and we're not going to be swinging it up and swinging it down. We're just going to provide a, you know, whatever it is, whether it's one or two percent, a natural amount of liquidity that allows it to continue to grow. And you're going to have cycles. You're going to have excesses that have to work out themselves out. But if if we didn't have the big swings in money supply up and down, where you ratchet it up and then you crank it all down, you wouldn't have these boom bust cycles. Uh, you know, they'd be there'd be cycles, but they'd be softer cycles. Yeah, I want to come back to cycles in a second because we're you know we talk about mining. I want to talk about mining and, and some of the commodities out there, what's happening, and some of the geopolitics around it. But um, I just want to stick with what you said earlier. So you started in 1973. Not a lot of computers around then. Not a lot of technology. <laughs> A lot more paperwork. I mean, how have you seen things evolve and change? And do you think those changes have been for, for good? Because, you know, if we, people do complain about, you know, um, quants and, uh, you know, big algorithmic trading and AI, et cetera, just controlling markets in a way that was never possible before. Yeah, I, I actually am one of those that thinks it's all not been for the better. Um, there was a time when I was running money, um, and I guess it was in, in my banking days where we actually took, we had what they called Quotron machines. And that was, the machine was there to get quotes. You could get, you know, up to the date quotes. You didn't have them on your, sitting on your desk. You had one or two in the office and you would go to the trading desk to look at the quotes or you would look at the other quote machine that was outside your office. And we, at one point, took them out and said, we don't need those. They're counterproductive to be following prices day by day. And that really was a huge advantage for uh, me as a money manager is I really am not somebody I, I, on Twitter, you'll see me constantly say, ignore the noise, which is the daily chatter. I, you know, somebody today asked me, you know, your forecasts don't change all that often. Don't you pay attention to the daily data that comes in? I said, sure, I look at it every day. But that's not, I don't link data to get my forecast. That's how a lot of analysts do it. But my forecasts have nothing to do with day-to-day -day data other than how's that fitting into the trends. Um, and it doesn't, you know, long-term forecasts just don't change that often if you do it right. Um, you know, I'm not trying to predict the exact pathway to certain things. I'm, I'm more looking at the bigger picture. So, yeah, I think, I think technology... It's certainly been a, a godsend in some ways and certainly makes all our lives e easier in some ways. But it, uh, I will say um, it's also made the market so much, uh, you know, everybody has access to all that information. So you don't have the inefficiencies that you can pick up on as easily. Um, there are still plenty of inefficiencies because of psychology. And so, you know, for a contrarian like me, I still see, you know, things that are, really, really cheap at times that nobody wants and I'll be glad to buy. Uh, so that hasn't gone away, but, but that day-to-day -day and the ability, we used to, you know, looking at um, um, the technical charts, I used to get a quarterly book that I would, you know, get the day got and go through all the charts and look, and they were, you know, they were 10-year charts and I was looking for opportunities technically. And obviously today, you you know, all that stuff's at your fingertips minute to minute and, and you know, lots of retail people as well as institutions, you know, spend a lot of time with that. They, so, they, they do. so, yeah, the world has certainly changed. It certainly is. We, we call it uh, investotainment, 
where people have got access to lots of data, lots of information. They interpret it in different ways. They choose to, um, you know, either learn how to do it or attempt to learn how to do it or just don't bother and they'll interpret it any which way they want. Uh, and, and, and if it confirms their, their cognitive biases, then, that, then that's all. It's all fine, but okay. But you're 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 longer term. You're looking for macro um, trends. You're trying to um, see big big picture movement. And you mentioned something which always fascinates me is is the way that people behave, the way that society reacts to certain situations and scenarios, and how that can inform your investing decisions. So, is that I mean, what what are the things that you look at now to to do your analysis? Yeah, I will. I will certainly say psychology is a very big part of um, how I look at markets. Um, I read uh, David Dreeman's uh, Investor Psychology book back in 1977. You know, he's had, he had several reiterations, uh, different editions since then with different titles. But I, when people today ask me for, you know, can you recommend some books? I go, well, you gotta remember, a lot of my learning is 47 years of just doing it hands-on. I did plenty reading years ago but you know, I'm not reading books today that determine what I'm going to do. I'm pretty well set in stone in terms of how I approach things. So, but back in 1977, I read his book, and I really I was already a contrarian uh, coming in, I think. But it certainly uh, it was an easy read for me because it spoke my language, and it really um, you know told the story of how big a, a role um, investor psychology plays and that yes, fundamentals are important, the economy is important, et cetera, but probably at least as important is sentiment and, and where the crowd is. And, you know, I've invested that way ever since. And, you know, I've learned, I, I learned every cycle something. I, I always say the difference between people who manage money successfully and people who don't isn't just experience. It's those that learn from their mistakes versus those that keep repeating the same mistake cycle to cycle. And there are plenty of both. I mean, um, you know, it's, it's amazing to watch, you know, rinse and repeat in this business because, you know, some people never learn. They just, you know, they get to that same point in the cycle again and they get caught up in the heat of it or, you know, or, you know, something's going down and even the, the fundamentals, they can make a case for it. They just can't handle the negative. So they sell out and they sell out at the bottom because they waited and waited. And then they finally, when the pressure was so strong, they said, I can't take it anymore. This thing's never going to be a winner. And they get out and the next day it starts going up. And so where do you like spending your time looking at, you know, what, what type of analysis interests you? What's, what are you getting out of bed and thinking, do you know what? I'm going to have a look at that. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking. I uh, People ask me, how do, how do you drive your forecast? And I, I kind of give them a shorthand. I know they probably want more detail. They want to know my secret sauce. You know, I go, like, mine's not model-driven. Mine's not, you know, I don't have a formulaic approach to it. You know, it's certainly not a, econometric. Um, and I go, I, I my stuff is a combination of fundamentals, technicals, um, cross-market analysis, sentiment, and and my 47 years of doing macro. I just, you know, I, I'll put my forecasting abilities up against anybody. And a lot of that is, it's hard to pinpoint exactly what makes somebody good at that. But it, it's, you know, it's the experience of having been through several cycles and saying, I've been here before. 
you know, I've seen this before and not getting caught up, up in the, you know, the popular narrative sometimes. So, so it's all of that, you know, it's, um, and the cross market stuff can really help you, you know, because I, I, when I was a money manager, which I'm not now, I used to say it was a, you know, three legged stool where if the fundamentals and technicals um, and the sentiment all came together, um, I had my convictions. If two out of the three came together, my convictions were less. If one out of three, I didn't have convictions. So, you know, I kind of operate the same way, I think, with the macro. It's when I see the puzzle fitting together, um, you know, it, it helps my convictions. I mean, I know you, you're not going to get swayed by um, any any of what I'm about to talk about, which is, you know, we, we've seen in the U.S. general elections, but both the, the last two, I know this one's not quite done yet, um, social media play a big part from both sides, Democrats, Republicans, from both sides, play the social media game where there's a lot of, I use the American phrase, fake, fake news from both sides, it seems, both sides accusing both sides of fake news. When you see that in the investing do you see that in the investing context? Do you see social media being used for good and do you see it being used for bad? Yeah, I, I would say it's, pro- it's definitely probably playing a role there. I'm not so focused on it, um, partly because I'm so independent of other people's views. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's some of that. I, uh, I can do when, when people come at me about manipulation, the, you know, the metals markets, particularly the gold market, I tend to push back and I go, you know, a lot of the, what gets charged as manipulation is because we peaked out in 2011 and we spent, you know, eight or nine years frustrating gold bulls and, you know, gold bugs. And so they had to have an excuse because they weren't going to look at themselves and say, I just blew it. You know, I was wrong. So it's always, you know, somebody's holding this down. Why are they holding it down? And I'm not saying there was no manipulation, but they, you know, when when uh, the banks got charged with the, um, you know, the manipulation they got charged with, people blew that into, see, I told you. And I said, that's fractions of a penny. You know, that's not the manipulation that holds prices down. That's, you know, they're, yeah, they're scalping. They're doing things that, and and through my whole career, obviously, um, trading desks manipulate. I mean, trading desks do things to get better prices on things or to get something down to where they want to buy it. And so they'll take small share and, and drive it down or what have you. There's lots of games that traders play. So, you know, but that's not the nefarious manipulation I think people think it is. And so I'm not, I'm not a big one to say that gold or silver prices are being held down by the banks. Um, Cause I'll, I'll go, well, you know, what, what was it then from 2001 to 2011 when we went from $250 to 1900 Were they not able to manipulate them? You know, and so this story that, gee, they're holding down prices because, um, you know, it would be inflationary and they can't afford that or they have all these hedges built in. You know, I just, I think a lot of that is urban myth. And, and um, so I'm not in that camp. 
Yeah, no, it's, it's it's an interesting one actually, and, and we've had the same thing. If we've if we've interviewed people with a negative view on gold, we've been absolutely torn apart by gold bulls. And if we've got someone who's there talking about twenty thousand dollar gold, we we get ripped apart by the other other group. How dare you? How dare you interview that person? Is the like, <laughs> no freedom no freedom of speech allowed uh, if it doesn't meet our narrative. And, I, and and that's why I'm intrigued with people like you who are a bit more you know fundamentalist in, in, in a kind of way. Um, where you, what I just want to treat what you think. I know you choose to ignore them. It seems to be as the answer when, when you see people who who don't like a narrative, um, they can do lots of things in terms of in- increasing, amplifying their voice. Um, and I just wondered why, given the amount of technology around, we can't be clearer with the information in the marketplace. And, and I guess it's possibly a factor of there are too many voices and a lot of white noise. Yeah, I, I guess I view it as, you know, uh, thank goodness, unlike unlike what's going on in the States where we're we're moving, not not in the markets, but in, in the politics, you know, we're, we're moving more and more, and I think really in the world, towards this one voice. You can't have different opinions, you know? It's, you know, if, if you have this opinion, we're not going to talk to you. And, uh, you know, I, I say in the markets, thank God we have plenty of voices. I don't mind somebody disagreeing with me vehemently. What I what I do mind is when you know they attack you uh, personally rather than disagreeing on on a fundamental or technical basis. You know that that's what makes markets. I'm glad that I'm I'm a contrarian. I've spent my whole life disagreeing with people, so I don't mind people on my you know following me that don't that think I'm a horse's ass. You know it's like that's okay, but when you're a troll that's just there to uh, try to find some reason to attack you, you know, I block people. I just go, I don't need that, you know? So, uh, you know, most of the time I put up with the bait because I know a lot of it is, is that psychology. You know, it's, they're, they're operating, I'm a contrarian. I'm, I'm the, you know, the smaller view. Um, right, we better talk about some commodities, your views. So I suspect you've got some strong views about gold, uh, given what you said at the beginning of this conversation. So what's gonna happen to gold? Yeah, so I'll I'll step back real quick just to kind of give you a a, a basis for where I'm going with gold. Um, I have for several years had the view that we are um, in a super cycle that starts. I, I define a super cycle as the big cycle between two depressions. So the last depression was the Great Depression in the 1930s. I think the next depression is probably you know the the 2030s. Um, so I, I think we're in the you know later stages. We're not there yet, but we're in the later stages of a super cycle. And super cycles, whether they're market cycles or economic cycles, get more volatile as you get towards the end. You know, the slope just deepens as you move through, you know, many decades, and it just gets steeper and steeper. Excesses build up through a super cycle, uh, and we're certainly seeing that in you know debt. Uh, I've been saying this for probably seven or eight years that we've got 250 trillion in debt across the globe. And what I don't think people talk about enough or understand enough is that's one form of leverage. The other form of leverage is derivatives. And we have quadrillions in in notional value of derivatives. And that's throughout the global financial system. And those are two forms of leverage. And as I learned in business school, leverage, helps you on the way up, but it really slams you on the way down. And so we're in the later stages of the way up. 
And uh, when this thing finally ends, that way down, I think, is going to be not only historic, but um, biblical. I mean, it's going to be, I, I don't see this ending well. What, what I separate, where I separate myself from, um, you know, some of the gloom and doomers of today, you know, the Peter Schiff's of the world, is they think we're, you know, down for the count soon and not to come back, you know, that basically this is the end of that super cycle, whether they call it that or not. And I, uh, my view is as long as you have, we're heading for deflation, I think next year, as long as you have deflation, your central banks have unlimited ability to print money. Where they lose the ability to print money is when you have inflation and rising inflation, they really lose it. <laughs> Lived through the 70s and the early 80s, and I, I know better than most in this business today because they didn't live there, um, just how much inflation changes what the Fed can do or what the central banks can do. That's coming. I think what we have, and just very simply in my macro call, is we're in a melt-up you know, final stage of an equity melt-up, it will end in, in a bust in a bear market. The bust is the economic side of it. I define a bust as um, something that can be as bad as a depression, but happen much faster. So it's, you know, kind of the speed of a recession, but much worse than a recession. So, so I think 20, 2021 is probably not initially, not first quarter, but I think as you go through the year, you're going to see a global bust the likes of which will be worse than anything we've experienced in the post-World War II era. So worse than 2008-9, which is, you know, the last worst one. So so not, not a drawn-out depression, a bust. Most of it will be contained within probably 12 months, maybe. And, and from a market standpoint, I think the bear market could happen faster than 2008-9. You know, you could have a peak to trough decline of as much as 80% in the stock market and uh, and have it all happen within three or four months. That's pretty amazing. I mean, that would be um, scary and, and everything else, but because we have central banks and I've been, I've been saying this for a long time against the crowd that kept saying they're almost out of bullets. If you remember for the last three or four years, you know, before this year, they're out of bullets, you know, what, what can they do? They only have so little room till they get to zero rates. Um, and in Europe, obviously at negative rates, but, but I always said it's money that matters, not interest rates. You know, the interest rate is the price of money, but it's the quantity of money that matters. In deflation, they have virtually infinite ability to print money because there's no inflation that's gonna come quickly. Um, so they, you know, they will overdo it and we'll end up with a huge inflation cycle. But that inflation cycle isn't what's in front of them. What's right in front of them is a free-falling financial system. This is next year. A free-falling financial system and a free-falling economy globally. They're not going to be worrying about, gee, what if I print an extra $5 trillion a month of you know, money? That could be inflation. They're going to be saying, I got to fix this now. The, the problem is the inflation's a two or three year lag. So by the time um, they, you know, we get there, they've gone way past what was reasonable. So I believe you're gonna see the Fed balance sheet grow from the current 7 trillion to over 20 trillion next year. That's pretty amazing. And I was saying that three and four and five years ago that when this hits, that's what you're gonna see. I, 
I don't know whether it's, when I say over 20, whether it's 21 or whether it's 30 trillion. I mean, we, we today are throwing around trillions like we used to throw around millions. And, and it's, it's because you have this massive leverage in the financial system that when this thing does unwind globally, um, it's going to require an ungodly amount of money to just stop the freefall. Well, and the, if you've got your, you're, you're, you're depressing me, David. You're depressing, and you said you're not one of the doom and gloom guys. So, <laughs> but the I'll give you the other side. Well, g- g- give me the other side, then I'll ask you the question I wanted to ask you. Go on then. Okay, so it could be. 10 trillion could be more that will be thrown at it and, and proportionally similar from every central bank in the world because it's going to be hap- happening globally. You know, you're going to have major banks failing, et cetera. Um, and, and probably over your way more than here because we went through it last time. Um, you know, ours, we could lose a couple, but it's going to be much worse over there, I think. Um, but that money, and I am in that camp that says money does matter, that money with a lag will turn things. It will, first of all, it will stabilize the financial system. So the free fall stops. And then secondly, it'll go into the capital markets. So that will be, you know, that's fairly traditional, although it'll be in a much bigger way. Um, and, and then it will, with a little longer lag, go to the economy um, in sometime in 2022, probably. Uh, and then we'll, we will begin what I think will be a six or seven year um, recovery now it won't be just money alongside the money will be huge fiscal stimulus and probably in the form of infrastructure so I think the next cycle will be very different from the last 38 years of cycles in that they were disinflation cycles where the consumer was was king what we are going to see in the 2022 to 2030 period, is uh, something much more like the 1970s, an industrial cycle. Um, you'll have the Belt and Road expansion over in China, and you'll have a lot of reshoring of capacity here in the US, um, and, and you're gonna have a big commodity cycle as a result. So, so the leadership of this cycle, which is social media, healthcare, you know, all of that, will be the laggards of the next cycle. The next cycle is gonna be a commodity cycle like never before. Um, and that's where gold plays in. You know, you're gonna have, I believe, um, like I said, next year could be three, four or 5% deflation. It's not gonna be Japan's deflation. It's gonna be real deflation. Um, yeah, cause some people think if you say deflation, they go, oh, yeah, that means I can buy things cheaper. No, this is deflation in incomes, deflation in, um, you know, assets, deflation in everything. So we'll come out of that in 2022 gradually, slowly. Um, but by, by the mid-2020s, I think you will be in double-digit inflation, double-digit interest rates on the way to high double digits. So, so in, you know, four, say four short years, you can go from negative inflation to potentially double digit again on their way to who knows, maybe 20% interest rates, maybe 20% inflation uh, by the end of the decade. Uh, in that environment, gold will be in my gold and silver will be the number one assets to own. I think gold will go to 10,000 plus, silver to 300 plus. Um, 
And I don't know what those pluses are. You know, once you get into the parabolics, who knows? You could go to 10,000 and double again in the next two years after that. You know, it's once you get into that hyperinflation environment, it, it could get pretty, pretty crazy. Okay. And, and what are the signs and indicators that you look for? Are, are, are there numbers that you look for, levers that you're, you're that are being used that you're looking yeah, for? Yeah. I mean, my view right now is that, you know, gold's probably going to get to 2,500 in the next few months. And then it will take a step back with all assets during the bust. So you might go to 2,500 and then back to where we are today. Um, there was a time not that long ago, you know, a year ago, where I my view was that gold could go all the way back down under a thousand in the bust. But I I don't think that's going to be the case because I think you're going to see money come on so fast. You know, in other words. Um, it will. It won't go down as as far or as fast as the equity markets. I think, um, you know, because people understand money ultimately will be inflationary. If you start seeing trillions printing, there are going to be people stepping in and saying, "I I need to own gold for the long term." So I I think that softens the downside. Um, in terms of what I look for, obviously. Um, in the economy, a lot is central bank policy. Um, you know, you need some of the fiscal policy here now, but it's really the central bank policy that's going to be dictating a lot of what I think is going to be um, deflation and then inflation. And, you know, I, I don't pretend to have a precise clock on it, but I think my timing is generally about right that next year sometime next year is going to be the the bust side of this that we will peak out in the market and peak out in the economy in the next you know the first half of the next year yeah. and and that beyond that you get a bust that's very deep but very fast and then sometime in 2022 you begin the upside again now keep in mind because i think we're making a secular peak in the stock market um in this this last run that any bull market beyond this is a cyclical bull market within a secular bear market so we won't get probably won't get near let's say we get to 4500 5000 on the s&p in the next three months which is my call um and my call is really 4500 but i think i'm going to prove to be conservative um let's say we get there in the next few months uh maybe sooner um you go down 80% from there. And I don't know whether it's, you know, 65% or 80%, but something, you know, 65, 70, 80%. Um, you got to come out of an awfully big trough in the next cycle. So you can, you can triple your money out of that. Let's say that S&P goes from 4,500 to 1,000. You can triple your, your S&P from the bottom and still only be at 3,000, you know, well short of where you were this cycle. So, that's what I mean by there's plenty of opportunity in the next cycle, but it's going to be in the context of a secular bear market. And I might say the reason I'm so confident about calling it a secular bull peak and a and followed by a secular bear is because of my inflation interest rate call. If if you have rates going from negative or zero to you know, 5%, 7%, 10%, 15%. The PE multiple is the inverse of that. So, you know, the reason we had a, the reason I call this a cyclical bull market that started in 1982 
is because that's when the PE multiples began to expand from single digits to what's now over 20. You're going to see the reverse of that in the next decade. You're going to see, you know, interest rates going from zero to 10 or zero to 15, and the multiples going from 20 something back down to single digits. So even if earnings are good because of inflation, nominal earnings are going to be very good in some areas, in commodities, et cetera. They're going to be capitalized at much higher interest rates, so the multiples shrink. Yeah. So that, 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 absolutely, absolutely, David. Like, like, and I understand that, and I, and I hope for very human reasons, I hope you're wrong, because that, that would, that's a, not a very nice world. Uh, that some people, we've, we've seen it, obviously, with COVID this year, people, lots of families, people struggling all around the world. Uh, with that, the picture you're painting is is worse than we're currently in. The the real yeah, I mean next year would be yeah the bust would be pretty painful yeah. you know very painful. Um, the recovery after that, which is where I differentiate myself from the boom and doomers, you do have a cycle. Now it's an inflation cycle, so those don't tend to be ten and twelve year long cycles like we've seen the last couple of cycles. They'll be shorter. There'll be plenty of opportunities for those that are, you know, opportunistic in terms of not just in the markets but in employment. Um, You're right. But people need to be flexible. We should. You know, we, 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 should to, we I was saying, but we should bring this back to um, inv investing because that's what we're here. We're, we're, we're about to, we're about to go down a uh, very very dark hole there. I think for uh, the regular man, the non-investor. So let's talk about investors. So just by, you you said where, where you what you think about what's going to happen with precious metals, gold, gold silver. There, um, obviously, people are talking um, about battery metals too. But in the picture that you paint, is there going to be enough money around for people to buy these uh, electric vehicles and um, in this brave new world of ours? Yeah, well, actually, I have a view that oil's probably going to see three hundred dollars plus in that in that same inflation cycle. So, I think it's premature to assume that you know um, the fossil fuels are yesterday's story. I think there's one more cycle, um, and the problem is. There's no way, no matter no matter who's president here or no matter what anybody wants in terms of a global climate accord, there's just no way you're going to be able to, uh, you know, you can't supply the fuel with the alternative fuels or the alternative energy um, in, in that time frame. I mean, you know, 25 or 30 years from now, yeah, EV is probably going to be huge. But, but, you know, between now and the end of this decade, I think people are way overestimating what alternative fuels can do. So, so we're we're gonna. I think we're gonna see when we get to the mid part of this decade that peak oil is gonna be a story again, and you're gonna have drilling offshore. You're gonna have all the places where it's hard to find, but it's the prices are up now, so that you can drill for it. You know, you're gonna have shortages of oil um, and gasoline, etc. So, um, so. Uh, I'm not sure what I, I lost track of what your question was. No, but but it, I, I do think that the, the, that, the, the question that was is, around battery metals and you know whether you think that they because we're talking about investing, got to bring it back to investing. Whether battery metals are a story for now for the next five years, or do you think because of your thesis on on peak oil that the reality is that's being over egged in the market? Yeah, the, I would guess it's certainly not my expertise, but I would guess that. It will play along with, there's going to be some parallel stories there. We are going to see, you know, EV continue to grow share. Um, so there's going to be demand for battery metals. 
Um, I think all commodities are going to go through the roof in the next decade. Um, you know, ag commodities, uh, all the metals, um, all the rare earth commodities. I think, you know, we're also we're also in a world that looks like it's going to not be a friendly world. I mean, there's going to be a lot of stuff going on around the world that's going to have military buildup continuing. So, so I think commodities continue. You know, they've been out of favor for so long. I think they are in their infancy in terms of this next cycle. Um, you know, you've had some pickup obviously this year. The bust will probably take it back a big step. And then starting 2022, I would say if I had to own anything, um, uh, if I had choice of anything I could own, um, my first choice would be commodities. Obviously, gold and silver would be at the top of the list, but you know, copper, rare earths, all those things I think are going to play, including the, the battery metals. Okay, fantastic. Dave. We better leave it there because I think I'm running out of time rather rudely. Um, but we didn't even get to speak about geopolitics because I think we've seen, you know, Amer American, you know, nationalism, protectionism, and we're starting to see the same language and rhetoric all around the world. None, none, uh, uh, sorry, especially around commodities, people, you know, critical minerals lists, et cetera, you know, the discussions around the uranium that you guys have been having in the States uh, and the like. Yeah, the real, the real, the real friction, I think, is um, globalism versus anti-globalism. Trump, Trump was the ultimate anti-globalist. And that, that it remains to be seen whether that was a one-time shot or whether it continues. I think the, I think the following he has, no matter what happens in this election, is not going away. And, and I think that's probably going to play out through the world. I mean, obviously, what's going on with Brexit is very much part of that same story. So, so I think there is an effort to push back on the globalism that has kind of been the, the force of the last few decades. I, th I think sovereignty and, and you know, getting that back um, is going to be a story for the next decade. I think so. I feel, that, feel, that feels like another conversation we could have. Well, like, thank you so much for your time, David. It's very generous of you. Um, I do appreciate it. I do obviously appreciate your comments on social media and the, the Twitter RTD too. So um, keep it up. Um, let's stay in touch and perhaps we can get, get you on and come back and talk about uh, geoglobalism, etc. Um, and entertain. What's it? What should I call it? Investertainment. Let's do some investertainment. Investertainment. Yeah, that's yeah. a good, good, good term. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.